0: Welcome to NCNA's Nursing Round, where we do the rounds on hot topics and other nurses' journeys. My name is Chris Kalperswaite, director of communications and outreach at the North Carolina Nurses Association. Today, we have Jennifer McFarquhar, MPH, BSN, RN, CIC, a registered nurse and a CDC epidemiology field officer with the North Carolina Division of Public Health. She's here to talk to us about the importance of infection prevention and control, Jennifer, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Chris.
1: Happy to be here today.
0: We at NCNA have had a partnership through ANA and the CDC for something called Project First Line, which is really just an opportunity to get nurses to understand and appreciate a little bit more, maybe the importance of infection control and infection prevention. And I'd say let's just get into this by taking a big picture view. What is infection prevention and why is it so important?
1: Right. Well, thanks, Chris. So, sure. You know, first, what is infection prevention? At its core, infection prevention is just what it sounds like. It is about preventing infection itself or stopping the spread of infection, you know germs which include you know bacteria or fungi they're found in everyday life that we encounter so that's air soil water and on our bodies you know some germs are helpful um, some are not and you know knowing how to prevent those germs from infecting us is very important and so that's why it's important for all healthcare providers to really understand the basics of infection prevention You know, healthcare providers or anyone providing care at any level have the power to help or to hurt those in their care. And so again, just understanding the basics of infection prevention and abiding by these basics prevents illness, disease transmission, and promotes health.
0: I presume most nurses get some of these basics as part of their normal training, and just being a healthcare professional gives you some of that. But can you talk about some of the different types of precautions And I presume things like hand hygiene, folks, it drummed into their heads so much, they may forget why.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Hand hygiene. You say the term hand hygiene, and I can hear a collective eye roll from the audience right now. But truly, hand hygiene is the cornerstone of infection prevention. It's the number one way to prevent acquisition of infection and prevent transmission of infection. Carrying that from one patient to another. So, you know, people might not realize some of the history of infection prevention, and as a nurse myself, I find this fascinating, but you know, hand hygiene dates back approximately 200 years to Ignaz Semmelweis, And he was actually a Hungarian doctor working in a general hospital in Vienna. uh, And he's actually known as the father of hand hygiene. In the mid-1800s, he noticed that women giving birth in one maternity ward that was actually run by medical students or resident physicians, um, these women were more likely to develop a fever and die compared to the women giving birth um, in adjacent maternity ward that was actually run by midwives. Um, So he thought this was very interesting, and he decided to investigate and look at the difference between those two wards. So the ward run by the midwives and the ward run by the resident physicians. So he visited these maternity wards, and he noticed that the doctors and the medical students often visited the maternity ward immediately after performing an autopsy. And so based on this information and the observations that he made, he developed a theory that those performing autopsies got some sort of particle, you know, or germs, as we would call it, on their hands, which they then carried from the autopsy room into the maternity ward. And so, you know, of course, midwives did not conduct surgery or autopsies, so they were not exposed to the same germs or particles that the resident physicians were exposed to. So as a result of this observation, uh, Semmelweis uh, stated that he mandated handwashing with chlorine for the doctors and the rates of infection and death in that maternity ward fell dramatically. And so that was really the first proof that washing your hands could prevent infection. So it was that, you know, that itself was fascinating. Again, so some of is is credited with being the father of hand hygiene, but this was actually carried on a couple of years later into a Crimean war uh, in Florence Nightingale. So of course we, we know about Florence Nightingale being one of our, uh, the the founders of nursing. And so she carried that forward as well into providing care for her patients. So she also introduced hand-washing practices and she achieved a reduction in infections in the soldiers and the patients that she was caring for. So again, just a brief uh, look back at history, but again, I think one that is so important and that speaks volumes to the importance of hand hygiene. I'm
0: guessing... Hand hygiene has improved quite a bit over the last 200 years. Can you talk about how the science of hand hygiene has changed or anything? Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I won't say that too much has changed about hand hygiene. Again, that is really one of the, the basics of infection prevention. What we have learned and, you know, studies have been conducted about different hand hygiene products and agents. So of course you have the soap and water. Uh, and again, it's recommended that you use soap and water and wash for 20 seconds at a minimum to achieve um, effectiveness. You know, but the other thing that we do also recommend using are alcohol-based hand rubs. And so, you know, again, there's a certain amount that you should use, typically a golf ball size, um, if it's the foam and, uh, you know, around the size of a dime, between a dime and a a nickel, if you're using more of a liquid-based. So, you know, both of those, uh, when applied and hand hygiene is conducted effectively, should be effective in removing the infectious uh, particles from your hands. But it is important, of course, that you rinse your hands after using soap and, and turn off the handle with a paper towel if you do have that. You know, one of the things that some people say, well, you know, soap and water is more effective than alcohol-based hand rubs. But actually, the, the research and the literature demonstrate tremendous efficacy with alcohol-based hand rubs, and sometimes even more so, you know, really what we say is if you're, you are if your hands have visible dirt and debris, or so visibly contaminated, then you should use soap and water to make sure that your hands are cleansed appropriately. And if you're caring for a patient with certain diseases such as clostridium difficile, um, then you should also use soap and water to wash your hands thoroughly after caring for, for that patient. But other than that, in any other circumstance, you know, alcohol-based hand rubs are appropriate for conducting hand hygiene. Well,
0: one thing that... Um you you mentioned it you said you could see folks rolling their eyes when you bring up hand hygiene again and again and again what are some other types of precautions that may not get quite the publicity as hand hygiene sure
1: so some of the other you know basics of infection prevention would be those standard and transmission-based precautions. So standard precautions apply to the care of all patients, and you know and this is really where you need to assess your patient and look at the care that you'll be providing to that patient and make sure that you use the appropriate personal protective equipment so you know for example if you're going into a patient room and that patient has diarrhea then of course you would want to use the appropriate personal protective equipment so that you yourself would not become soiled and then you would not carry, again, any illness out of that patient room. So, of course, you may want to wear a gown and the care of that patient, then obviously you would wear gloves. So standard precautions really is that set of precautions that's basic for the uh, basically intended for the care of all patients. So that would include, of course, hand hygiene, as we've already discussed, using the appropriate personal protective equipment whenever there is a possible, um, whenever you suspect there might be an exposure to infectious material. And again, I use the example of a patient with diarrhea. So you don't know if that patient actually has an infection, could be spread through that diarrhea. So you want to make sure that you would wear the appropriate personal protective equipment. You know, one of the other things that we also consider to be part of the standard precautions uh, is to make sure that you also follow respiratory hygiene and cough etiquette principles. And so this actually feeds in very nicely to the recent COVID-19 pandemic that we have uh, been experiencing for the past two and a half years. But again, this is making sure that if you're sick, stay home. And if you do need to cough, then make sure that you cover your cough and, and do so by coughing away from people and coughing into your elbow. If you need to be around people, then you know wear a mask as appropriate as well. And then one of the other considerations um, as part of standard precautions is where does a patient need to be placed? Um, you know if they're coming in, to your hospital or your facility and you suspect they might have a respiratory condition, do they need to be placed in a private room? Most likely so. And you might also need to consider if they actually need to be placed in a room that has the capacity um, to be converted to negative pressure. So, you know, when caring for patients with tuberculosis, for example, those patients do need to be placed in a special room with negative airflow so that the particles can be evacuated out of the room, um, you know, outside, directly outside. And so so the, the airflow would not be circulated within the unit or within the hospital. There there are a number of other things also, and that would be including making sure that laundry is handled appropriately. If there are any procedures that are performed in the care of that patient, that disinfection and sterilization of equipment occurs properly. And, you know, one of the other things that we talk about is safe injection practices and making sure that your injection practices are appropriate and that you actually dispose properly of all equipment that you will use when providing an injection. So make sure that you actually have a hard-sided red box container. So I think that kind of covers the the standard precautions. So again, just a lot of different elements um, within standard precautions that nurses and and other healthcare providers use on a daily basis and implement on a daily basis and and honestly probably don't even think about it. Um, And then we have a couple of other precautions as well. And this is what we call transmission-based precautions. Um, And these precautions are used when we, we suspect that a patient has a condition, again, that can be spread via one of these routes. And so I'll go through these. We have three that I will go through today. And one of those is contact precautions. That is the first one. And that is where a, a patient is, is either known or suspected to have an infection or condition that can be spread via the contact route, which means can be spread from patient to patient on the hands of nurses and other healthcare providers. So again, make sure that the patient is in an appropriate room, and this is where we really would want to use a single patient room, if available. And I think most most acute care facilities now, most acute care hospitals actually only have single patient rooms. So that makes it a little bit easier uh, for those individuals who practice in a hospital. In a long-term care setting, it could be a little bit more challenging. But again, most appropriate to have a single patient room for the care of that patient Uh, And again, use your personal protective equipment appropriately, and this would include gloves and gown. So again, personal protective equipment, and then be very careful if you have to move or transport that patient also. And then as much as possible, use disposable or dedicated patient care equipment. And so that would include a blood pressure cuff and, and a, stethoscope sometimes as well so sometimes um, you know we'll have a dedicated stethoscope to the to the care of patients with specific conditions that require contact precautions and then there's a very Um, specific cleaning and disinfection process for the rooms as well. Make sure that the rooms are frequently cleaned and disinfected. Uh, And we usually conduct a thorough cleaning um, at the end of the day after uh, after cleaning other patient rooms. Um, And then obviously upon discharge, you want to make sure and clean that room very thoroughly. So the second type of transmission-based precautions would be droplet and this would be instituted for those patients known or suspected to be infected with pathogens that can be transmitted via the respiratory droplet route. And so these are kind of the larger droplets that we would, that we would consider that can be generated when somebody um, is coughing, sneezing, or talking. And uh, a good example of that would be uh, influenza. So influenza can be spread via the, the droplet route. But one of the things we would want to do is if there is a patient who you are concerned might have influenza or another condition spread via the respiratory or droplet route, place a, a surgical mask on that patient. So again, that just minimizes the potential exposure to you and to others in the surrounding vicinity. Again, patient placement, and I've talked about that, making sure the patient's in a private room, using your personal protective equipment appropriately. And for you, this would actually mean wearing a surgical mask as well. And then being very careful as far as if you need to, to move that patient outside the room. And the last one that I'll touch on today is actually airborne precautions. And so again, airborne precautions, it's, Uh, intended for use by patients that are either known or suspected to be infected with conditions or diseases transmitted via the airborne route. And I know I previously mentioned tuberculosis, but this would be a a really good example for the use of airborne precautions. And so here again, that's respiratory. And so you'd want to place a mask on the patient, again, a surgical mask, And then place that patient in what we call an airborne infection isolation room, and that's a negative pressure room. Again, very specific guidelines, and we would vent that air directly to the outside. And and one thing that would differentiate this is just restrict healthcare personnel from entering that room. So you just want to minimize the number of people that are potentially exposed. And again, it would just, part of that is dependent too upon the specific disease in question make sure that you use your personal protective equipment appropriately and for airborne precautions that would actually be um, a NIOSH approved um, N95 or higher level respirator. Again, making sure that you limit the transport and movement of patients. um, And then some other diseases that would require airborne uh, precautions, making sure that those people that are susceptible to the disease would not enter the room as well. And so I'm just thinking of measles or, or something, conditions such as measles. So that was kind of a, a lot there about different types of precautions that we implement and that we discuss frequently in the field of infection prevention.
0: Well, it's super important. There's a couple other angles that I want to dig into a little bit more. We're going to take a quick rest, wander over to the break room for a snack. In the meantime, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Register now for NCNA's 2022 annual convention. Join hundreds of friends and colleagues from around the state September 15th and 16th in Raleigh. Full registrants can earn up to 24.5 credit hours while taking advantage of the state's best networking and professional development opportunities for nurses. Our diverse agenda includes keynotes from ANA President Ernest Grant and TEDx alum Rebecca Love, along with dozens of other spectacular speakers. We are back with Jennifer McFarquhar, a CDC epidemiology field officer with the NC Division of Public Health. We're talking about the importance of infection prevention. and We just had a a real big conversation about some of the why. I was hoping you could summarize the impact of infection prevention on healthcare associated infection.
1: Yeah, thanks, Chris. So, you know, um... Sometimes it's really hard to quantify the impact of what we do, and I just wanted to provide some statistics about, you know, the importance of infection prevention and why it is that we emphasize the field of infection prevention so much and some of these basic principles and practices that that we put into practice here. So the, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, estimates that Uh, you know, 5% of all hospitalized people who admitted every year result in a healthcare associated infection. Um, So this leads to uh, almost about three quarters of a million individuals who acquire a healthcare associated infections and about 75,000 people who die every year. Uh, And so to, to put it into a more manageable chunk, this translates to one in every 31 hospitalized patient is affected by a healthcare associated infection and 197 patients with a healthcare associated infection die every day. So I think you know right there that's a a key factor um, for summarizing the importance of infection prevention and this is something that, that you as nurses and other healthcare providers really hold in your hand. And I don't want to um, make lightly of that um, because again, I've talked a lot about hand hygiene, but again, um, you know, you really have the power in your hands to impact this. So we've talked about the, and the infections and then the deaths, but the financial impact of healthcare associated infections is also pretty staggering It represents an estimated 28 to 33 billion in excess healthcare cost, you know, nationally, and just in North Carolina alone. And I will say that these figures are a couple of years old. We haven't had time the past couple of years to really look at to conduct a cost analysis. But just in North Carolina alone, the figure is between 124 and $348 million. And that's each year. So again, pretty significant impact. On, um, on our daily lives and also on you know, financial in the future too. So, you know these are just for healthcare associated infections and this really doesn't include another, another piece that I think is really important to discuss today are certain highly drug resistant organisms. So we are now seeing a rise of, um, of bacteria and fungi that are resistant to multiple, multiple antibiotics. And so we call these loosely as a group, multi-drug resistant organisms or MDROs. Uh, And so what happens with these organisms? Um, You know, antimicrobial resistance happens when the germs that we've talked about, such as bacteria and fungi, develop the ability to defeat the drugs that have been designed to kill them. So that means that the germs are not killed and they continue to grow. So antimicrobial resistance, it's been termed by CDC as an urgent global public health threat. And this kills at least 1.27 million people worldwide. And in the United States, it's nearly 5 million deaths occurred in 2019. So an average year, more than 2.8 um, 8 million people are affected by antimicrobial resistant infections. And then again, thirty-five thousand people die as a result. So it's a global impact, national impact, and also you know here in North Carolina, we're seeing a rise in multi-drug resistant organisms as well. So you know one of the one of the causes for the rapid rise of resistant bacteria or and fungi as well is overuse of antibiotics. And so I think that that is one key area that we in the healthcare industry can truly impact and you know as a nurse on the floor in the hospital you know wherever you are you can have an impact on the use of antibiotics and you know you can discuss this in your teams when rounding with patients and you can discuss it with your clinicians with whom you work and you can also discuss it with the patients you know some of the some of the conditions that we see do not require the use of antibiotics And so I know that sometimes it's a very delicate conversation to have both with your providers, your clinicians and your patients. But I think it's very important that we have that conversation. And it really is in within your power to impact, you know, in the United States as a whole. It's estimated that well over a third, sometimes up to a half of all antibiotics prescribed in acute care settings, such as a hospital, are unnecessary or inappropriate and at least 30% of outpatient. So, um, you know, this is you and I, when we go to to our primary care provider, um, outpatient antibiotic prescriptions are unnecessary. So the more bacteria are exposed to antibiotics, um, the more likely they are to develop resistance. So, you know, it really isn't just about hand hygiene. And wearing the appropriate personal protective equipment, but is also thinking about being wise stewards of the precious resources that we have, including antibiotics. And so we actually call that antibiotic stewardship or antimicrobial stewardship, because again, you know, it, it's not just um, the bacteria, but is also fungi. And so we have different antifungals that would kind of fall under the term antimicrobial. So, so antimicrobial stewardship, what is it? It is the efforts to look at antibiotic prescriptions, what is being prescribed. It is improving antibiotic prescribing practices by clinicians um, and also used by patients so that antibiotics are only prescribed and used when needed. It's also making sure that uh, the patients have the appropriate diagnoses. So minimizing misdiagnoses so that we can, again, appropriately and effectively treat the patients in our care. Um, And last but not least, you know, to ensure that the right drug dose and duration of antibiotics are selected when an antibiotic is needed. So Chris, I think that's a pretty good summary of the impact of infection prevention and then kind of discussion point on multi-drug resistant organisms and antimicrobial stewardship.
0: So one thing that just as, as you've been talking, I've been thinking about the way infection prevention is framed sometimes, and you you alluded to it fairly explicitly with uh, talking about how nurses might roll their eyes at hearing about hand hygiene yet again. Is it something that we need to sort of flip the script on instead of finger wagging at healthcare professionals about things that they need to be doing better is Do you see infection prevention as a a way of empowering nurses to be better proponents for their patients?
1: Absolutely, Chris. I think that is so vital. You know, it really isn't about just um, us conducting hand hygiene. That's a huge piece of it. But it really is the fact that you have the power in your hands um, to improve the health and safety of your patients, but then also of yourself too. And it's very important for patients to hear that they also have the power. They also can help improve their health by taking care of themselves um, and and implementing some of these same infection prevention principles in their homes. And also that patients become aware of uh, really the importance of antibiotics and only using them when needed. So yes, I think it goes both ways. You know, it's the care of your patients, for your patients, but it's also care for yourself, and making sure that your patients are appropriately taking the steps that they need to make sure that they have optimal health.
0: You've referenced a couple times the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Right now, we're doing this interview in July 2022, and You know, COVID is still in the headlines, but the biggest headline right now, it seems like, is monkeypox. Who knows what's going to be the big disease that catches everybody's attention six, eight months down the road from now? Does the new disease that people are talking about, does that change the calculus on how you approach infection prevention, or does it just reiterate the importance of being good with the basics?
1: yeah everyone always wants to know what's next and <laughs> does that change the practice and you know it really is the latter of what you just said it is adhering to the basics you know knowing infection prevention um, knowing how to protect yourself and how to protect your patients, that really is key to any disease that comes down the path, whatever that might be. You know, so I think you know, now more than ever with emerging infectious diseases, as you just mentioned, the COVID-19 pandemic and monkeypox now becoming more prevalent, you know, it's just important to follow the basics, follow the proper hand hygiene guidelines, make sure that you have the appropriate PPE that you need, use it, know how to use it safely. So really, it just goes back to, um, you know, you have the power to help or hurt those in your care and in your home. And so just understanding the basics of infection prevention and abiding by these principles, you know, prevents illness and disease transmission and
0: promotes health. Well, I think we've covered most of what I was expecting to talk about. Is there anything you think we should have uh brought into the conversation, or anything that you want to reiterate to impress upon nurses, no matter what their practice setting may be?
1: No, Chris, I think we really have touched on everything that I think is most important. Of course, I'm sure after this podcast is concluded, I'll probably think of something additional to add, but I really think that, that we've covered it. It's just understanding um, the basics and adhering to those basics.
0: Thank you, Jennifer, for sharing your expertise on infection prevention. It's an incredibly important topic, and we appreciate having your insights. We'll see you all during our next episode of Nursing Rounds. In the meantime, continue to lead nursing forward. Thank you.